we stand in the presence of God's Word. Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. This is the word of the Lord. Four months ago, Gail and I bought reservations to see Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Thursday, three days ago, was our turn to see it. The Italians are trying desperately to preserve these masterpieces. Two weeks before, we had been at Padua. There's a very famous chapel there that has beautiful frescoes filling the room. The room's about the size of our Rose Chapel. And these beautiful frescoes at Padua were painted by Giotto. Um, you have to go into a holding room 15 minutes before your reservation time. Doors automatically open. They stay open for 30 seconds or so. So the 25 people who are going in have to move quickly, and then the doors close behind you. It's the uh, same temperature all year round. You sit there 15 minutes and watch a film, and uh, if you bring in a cold body, it's warmed a little. If you bring a very hot body in, you're cooled off, and then 15 minutes later, the doors open automatically. You go into the chapel. You have 15 minutes, and then the doors are going to open at the other end, and you're going to be ushered out. The same was true of the Last Supper. Uh, we got there, uh, plenty of time. Um, the doors opened. We went in with 23 others, and the doors closed behind us. Everyone stood quietly, and 15 minutes later, the doors in front of us opened, and we went into this beautiful room where Leonardo da Vinci worked for four long years. It, of course, is one of the great masterpieces of the world. He was commissioned by the ruling family in Milan to do this for the Dominicans. It was a dining room. And on this dining room wall, he did this magnificent painting. It must be 30 feet long, I would guess, maybe 8 feet high. The room is not large, again, about the size of our Rose Chapel. You can get within maybe eight, ten feet of the painting. It's elevated a little bit. The floor now where people stand is lower a little bit so that you're looking right at it. Now in the three weeks we had been in Italy, we had seen at least a half dozen other paintings 
about the Last Supper of our Lord. Every artist has his own, her own interpretation. Leonardo da Vinci, as you recall, painted all 13 figures on one side of the table. They're all looking out. Well, they're not really. They're looking at Jesus, 12 of them. Some of the artists depict that moment when Jesus has dipped the bread into the dish and hands it to Judas. Leonardo da Vinci chose to use the Gospel of John account, but to go up a few verses farther up when he first announces, the one who will betray me is sitting at the table. And the twelve are going, surely not I. Not you. Surely not you. At the table? One of us? You see them all. All twelve of them with Jesus in the center of the table. Gail and I have been to Passover, as have some of you, and so we were looking very carefully to see. There wasn't one big container of wine, but there was a glass in front of each one. Uh, there was bread, there were little fishes on the platters uh, at, at the table for this meal that night. It's a very significant moment. And I read to you parts of that story just a few moments ago. I'm not going to be with you much longer. Tell us where you're going, Peter said. We want to go with you. Well, you will, but not now. Not now. And then we have this famous passage from the 14th chapter of John. Let's take a look. Number one, let not your hearts be troubled. Death does trouble us. Archaeologists, persons who study the development of Homo sapiens, the thing that brought us to be different from all the other primates, tell us that the frontal lobe of our brains continued to develop through the years until finally we achieved self-transcendence, which means the ability to go outside oneself, to project oneself into the future, and even to be critical of self. We know that salmon leave the great oceans and swim up the very stream where they were spawned, there to spawn again before they die. But scientists say salmon don't really know they're about to die. They're strictly acting on a genetic code. But all these other creatures of the world are acting on genetic code, but humans know they will die. They know it. Don't always think about it. Don't want to think about it, but it's there. A week ago, we had arrived in Torino, Turin. Uh, every place we went, we go to the Tourist Information Center, even though I'd bought a book last fall and I'd read, read, read to try to prepare us for our trip. Even so, we went to these information bureaus, and there in the main heart, the biggest piazza in Turin, I uh, had a very helpful young man, and he said, it's pretty easy here in Turin. We've made it easy for you. Look at the city map. We have numbered the 15 major museums in Turin. We have numbered the 15 most important churches in Turin. Furthermore, we have numbered them by the number of people who visit them annually. You want to see what the most people see? You go to number one. 
Then you go to number two, then number three, number four. How many days do you have? Can you do all 15 museums? Can you do all 15 churches? Go to the ones the other people go to see. Well, in Turin, of course, everybody knows about the Shroud of Turin. It's generally shown once every 25 years. It was shown in 2010, so you need a reservation for 2035 if you're going to be there when they show it again. So it's not the number one spot. Gail and I were amazed that the number one museum in Turin was the Egyptian Museum in Italy. Well, we want to see what everybody else wants to see, so we went to the Egyptian Museum and we discovered that almost everything in there dates back about 3,500 years. About 3,500 years ago to the time of the great pharaohs, we saw all these mummies that had been brought to Italy, kept there. You could see x-rays of some of these mummies displayed on the wall so that you could see what some uh, physician thought was cause of death why this person was mummified. They had all kinds of demonstrations that you could see as to how the mummification process was done. They had little Italian school children uh, in groups and their teachers had them sitting on the floor, the bigger one sitting over in a corner and they're lecturing them about all these ways of mummification. You could see all these tiny little dolls that were put into the cases with the mummies so that when they got to the promised land they would have someone to serve them to wait on them. These little dolls were representations of the future servants they would have. I would have to say they were a little anxious about death in ancient Egypt. A little anxious about it. As are we all. In Milan, Gail and I were making our way along the Via Mazziones. There are two wonderful museums there. And as we went through one of them, I was particularly enjoying being blessed by the paintings of Tintoretto. I was looking at one of these after another, just standing there amazed at this beautiful, beautiful work. And suddenly, here was the subject. Often, those paintings so long ago, we do not know the subject. The artist is often more famous than the subject uh, he or she might have been painting. And in this case, it simply said, Portrait of a Young Man. He was good-looking. This was a really good-looking young Italian, and he was finely, finely dressed. But Gail suddenly said, Look, there was a mirror behind the painting, and this mirror was showing that the artist had painted on the backside of this handsome young man a skull. He, too, will die, who is now so handsome and vibrant and well-dressed. He, too, will die. So John's writing strikes home, doesn't it? Let not your hearts be troubled. I know you can see into the future. I know you can project yourself into tomorrow and next year. Don't be anxious. And then he tells them, why not? He begins, believe in God. Did you see the article in the United Methodist Reporter a month ago written by Dr. Ben Witherington? He's a seminary professor. And Dr. Witherington has just lost a 32-year-old daughter to a pulmonary embolism. A very unexpected death. 
And in his article, he said, when you really come to matters of life and death, the death of somebody you love better than you love yourself, it's not enough to say, I believe in God. You have to say what you believe about God. And many people, he said, were saying things that my wife and I don't believe about God. I heard somebody say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And that's in the Bible, all right, he said, but that wasn't the end of the book of Job. That's more in the middle of the book of Job, where people are debating all these horrible things that have been happening to Job. And you have this little statement, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But that wasn't the conclusion of the book. The conclusion of the book is, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I am persuaded. I am persuaded. He is able to keep me against that day. Dr. Witherington said, we speak of physicians taking the Hippocratic Oath. Well, I believe God took that oath, he said, and it begins, first, do no harm. God is not one who does harm. God is not the one who kills 32-year-old young women who have so many wonderful years supposedly ahead of them. God didn't kill my daughter, he said. A pulmonary embolism killed our daughter. And we grieve our loss. We grieve her loss of so much that lay before her. But we know nobody's weeping more than God with us. Last night I had a beautiful wedding here. Hillary and Caleb, such a handsome and beautiful couple. They were fun to counsel with. They seemed so interested in everything I was saying to them weeks ago when we met. They were here on time, ready, focused. Everything went wonderfully well. One of those weddings you feel so good about. One of the things I told them when I was counseling with them was that I love this little prayer as the minister collects the rings and says... The wedding ring is an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace, signifying to us that mystical union that exists between Christ and his church. And then I said, let us pray. Bless, O Lord, the giving and receiving of these rings that they who are about to wear them may walk always in your favor. And I said to them at the counseling, the truth is, all of us walk always in the favor of God. Which simply means God wants good to happen to you. Do you believe in God, that God is the one who never wants bad things to happen to you? Who allows us to meet the consequences of our irresponsibilities, but God grieves when bad things are happening to us. God does no harm. God is the one who wants good to come, that there is no child of his on the planet he loves more than you, and none whom he loves less than you. He just loves all his children the same, little Italians and little Americans, males and females, blacks and whites and browns and all kind of folks, just loves them all, wants good to come to them all. Do you believe in God? Number two, believe in me, he said. This time last year, Gail and I were in New York City and then Washington, D.C. 
We'd been to Israel in February, and we decided, well, you know, we've really never given New York and Washington the look that we've given some of the other major centers of the world. We gave both of them a really good look. We went to museum after museum. Gail and I, late Thursday afternoon, we were sitting in this beautiful park in Milan. You know, it was the last afternoon. We're sitting there, and uh, it was snowing in Germany. It had unusual freakish snow this week, and, and it didn't snow in Italy, but the cold air had come down. And we're sitting there in the city park with our jackets on with the sunshine, looking at all these people, watching them, little children, teenagers, moms and dads, grandmothers, granddaddies, strolling these little ones. They have stroller time late in the afternoons in much of Europe. And Gail said, what would it be like to take a relaxing vacation? Because I had walked her wheels off, I guarantee you. I wore my little pedometer, and every night I would say to her, we walked 6.2 miles today. <laughs> really? Yeah, we did. We walked and walked and walked. There was so much to be seen. Well, last year, we really gave that kind of look to New York and to Washington. We have some great, great museums in our own country. And late one afternoon in Washington, we saw Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Remember the story about Thomas Jefferson's Bible? He decided at one point that he was going to eliminate the not-so-important parts of the Bible. And he stropped the razor as sharply as he could get it. And then with this razor, he cut out all of the New Testament except what he believed Jesus had said. He just wanted to concentrate on what Jesus had said. Now, you and I know that it isn't that simple, that it's very important what Mark tells us Jesus did next. It's important what Matthew and Luke and John tell us that Jesus did as well as what he said. However, there are scholars today who say probably the most authentic things we have about that flesh and blood person, the teachings, the stories, the parables. How do we understand the heart Some time ago, I told you about Michelangelo Marisi, who came to be known by his hometown, Caravaggio. We saw again that magnificent painting of Jesus in Emmaus. Caravaggio's painting of Jesus sitting at the table with two in Emmaus. An older couple standing looking on as Jesus breaks the bread and they realize who he is. Wow. Then he was gone. And they ran back seven miles to Jerusalem, pounding on the door and saying to the disciples, he's alive, he's alive. And they said, we know he's been here. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you eager to know as much about him as you can? What was the heart and mind that God put into this flesh and blood person one time? What that means? Well, Jesus said, if you believe in God and you believe in me, I want to tell you there's a place prepared for you. 
get to come and be with God. We get to come and be with him. Two of the people that Gail and I had on our prayer lists when we left died while we were gone. I have Ken Selby's funeral Tuesday afternoon. I have Barbara Rice's Wednesday afternoon. Both of them on my list. We were praying every day for them. Lighting a candle. Praying, praying. We wanted them to live. Their families wanted them to live. But we do believe when illness something else takes our lives from us that God has a special place. We are a people who believe in the resurrection that God did in fact raise Jesus from the dead and that Jesus' words can be believed. They can be believed. John Todd was born in a village in Vermont in the year 1800. When he was only six, his mother and father died. He was suddenly an orphan at age six. An aunt who lived some miles away said she would be willing to take young John Todd into her home and raise him as her own. When he became a young man, he felt called to be a minister. He went to college, to seminary, and became a minister. And when he was 41 years old, he got a letter from his aunt. And she said to him, John Todd, you have a good education. You've been a preacher now for some years. I know the end is really close for me. I want you to tell me straight what you know. John Todd wrote to her, on the darkest day of my life, when I saw my mother and father lowered into the grave, there was a man came up to me and said, his name was Caesar, that he worked for you, that you had sent him to fetch me. And he helped me pack what little bit I had. He strapped it on the back of his horse and had me sit on top of it and told me to hold tightly round his waist and we galloped off on his horse. It got dark. The woods seemed unusually dark. I wasn't sure I could hold on long enough. When suddenly, there was a house. Candles. Lamps. A fireplace. A warm supper. Most of all, you telling me to come in, that you had a special place for me, and a special place it was. Dear aunt, I believe the Lord will fetch you home.